Uh, it is the holiday season. Oh, oh my gosh. I need a, I need a, something that's more. Here we go. There. Uh, <laughs> I've got eggnog here. Uh, oh, shit. I need to get wine then. Right? You got to get something. You got to get something. Because um, we're going to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, one of the greatest and most frustrating Christmas movies there is. And Derek and I share a love-hate relationship with this movie. So we got to work it out. We just got to, we just got to process our feelings together and talk about what it is, what is about this movie that's good and bad. And, and uh, you know, the ways that I think a movie like this, because it's watched like every year, even if it's just in the background, I think it has a profound influence on people's assumptions about morality, politics, all kinds of stuff. So there's a lot to work with. Especially a movie like that, because it's, it's so, it, it evokes such like intense feelings positive most feelings right and you almost can't help but internalize everything yep when you're watching it i have a love-hate relationship with like all of jimmy stewart's movies i think because uh mr smith goes to washington is very similar yeah um i'll I'll mention a couple things his his hitchcock movies are are easier because he's always you know it's like yeah there's there's less of a moral uh a moral component (laughs) yeah yeah well it's like it's like so it's always like a lot of really good stuff and then there's like some really bad idea smuggled in between. And um, I don't know, like if you're not careful, you find yourself sort of absorbing the bad one or just by, by default almost. But yeah. I feel like that's how a lot of bad ideas happen. It's like or, or like movie propaganda happens. It's not like explicit. It's the, yep. it's the subtle things that kind of get, get inserted in between like a sandwich where the bread is really good. And then there's this tiny little layer in the middle that's like really bad or really stupid. And, um, most people don't pick up on it, but then they absorb it still. Yeah. So yeah, you, you can create these, these sort of archetypes with characters that are so powerful. I mean, the, the ultimate original for this, when it comes to Christmas stories is Dickens, a Christmas Carol, obviously, but where, you know, which like Mr. Potter is clearly drawing from the Scrooge idea where you've created this archetype and people know it in the story. And even if even if you're being really charitable with interpretation within the bounds of the story itself, even if you're able to say, well, yeah, that person, you know, was a jerk. The fact that they were also really focused on profits and not losing money. And they're also a jerk and they have this sort of caricature. Then people take that with them out into the real world and they see somebody who's like a hard driving business person. And they're like, they're a Scrooge. They're a Potter. And they yeah. automatically associate all the other negative traits that those people have with their business acumen and their desire to run a profitable enterprise or the idea of profit itself. And it's a very yep. subtle and dangerous thing because obviously the opposite of profit is value destruction, which is a, a death spiral for humanity. So like, it's very easy. You get the conflation, like you, you, you idolize the Jimmy Stewart character, which he has a lot of great qualities that are admirable, but he also is running a business that seems more interested in making his friends happy than making money. And if you take that to its logical end, you're like, well, this guy's going to destroy himself and everyone around him. If he keeps losing, money, <laughs> right? like, like that's not a good thing to emulate. Um, but it's subtle. Well, well, okay. Tell me, how did you, did you always grow up watching this movie? Give me your, and like, did yeah. You like- oh yeah. I mean, so there are two movies I grew up watching like every year around the holidays and, and even Sometimes maybe uh, different times. Uh, so it's Sound of Music and um, It's a Wonderful Life. 
my parents just like were really into those two movies and we always watched them as a family and there were movies that like grew on me tremendously as i got older i started to appreciate them more i mean in the beginning especially with sound of music it was always like oh we have to watch that again you know because it's so long yeah and there's that one uh kind of lengthy scene where the nun is singing like climb every mountain <laughs> you know and it just kind of just like as a kid in particular just drives you crazy <laughs> but uh I, those are two movies that like, i love they're great movies um and um sound of music or uh, it's a wonderful life we watched every year and it is over the years it, like grew and grew and grew on me and i was like man this is a really amazing movie jimmy stewart's a great actor all the actors are good um and uh uh you know th there's a beautiful message in there about you know, the impact your actions have on the lives of other people about appreciating your own life you know smelling the roses um and um you know about the the long-term payoff of I think of like living a, a noble life or trying to live a noble life. Um, and so I liked that part of it. And then as I got older though, you, I, I just sort of had this like meme in Ayn, my mind. I would Ayn start Rand. to tell people what you, you came across Ayn Rand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that too, that you admired as a child, you were like, this is all altruistic bullshit. <laughs> well, and, and like, uh, and, uh, yeah, that, and, and, and kind of getting familiar with like even the financial crisis and like the concept of like subprime loans. And then I would start to look at It's a Wonderful Life and be like, this guy's basically giving out subprime loans, <laughs> you know, like, like that's what he's doing. He's giving out subprime loans. And the villain is this guy who's like actually giving out loans that are going to work. And the movie paints it as like, you know, the villain's giving out is, is this corrupt profit seeker and, and he's going to turn the town into this, you know, terrible, you know, capitalist hellhole and Jimmy Stewart giving out his subprime loans that people aren't able to pay off and that end up leading to like a run on the bank and all sorts of other bad problems. You know, he's the good guy. And so I started to kind of make this joke in my mind that like Potter is the real hero of It's a yeah. Wonderful Life. And I, I love repeating that every year because there's some truth to it. It's not, you know, obviously in you know, well, black well, or white. That's, that's how this conversation came about because I think over the last several years since we've known each other, every Christmas you'll send some message that's like, you know, I'm like, oh, we're watching some wonderful life of the family. And you'll be like, Potter's the real hero. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> we need to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, where, where should we uh, like, should we just talk about, what should we talk about? Yeah. Well, so, so I think there's, there's a, a two sort of threads here that are outlined in your description of how you experience this movie over time. And mine is similar where it's like, here's the things that are great about this movie. And then here's the, you know, the sort of libertarian pill that makes you realize all the shitty things. And then, and then how now, how do I integrate those things so that I have an enjoyable experience while also kind of critiquing um, and seeing some of the silliness. So for me, it was similar. So we would watch it every year. And, uh, you know, as a kid, it was just like part of the, part of the whimsicalness of Christmas. You just watch this old black and white movie yeah. and you, whatever. And then as I got older, I started to appreciate it more and more. Um, and then I don't know what stage I hit probably certainly when I had kids, like it just makes me cry every single year. I don't know why I just cry. I know I cry in a lot of stuff now that I have kids. It's just for some reason, like every Pixar movie and everything else, but <laughs> you know, it's like there's several poignant moments in the movie and there's something about, there, it, it's weird for me to even say this because I can't quite figure out why this would be, but there's something on a very deep level about Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, 
that I relate to. Even though I have, I have not, I've kind of done the opposite of him. Like if I want to do something, I'll go move to a new city. I'm not going to let people try to tell me that I owe it to them to do this and to do that. But I think it's the part at the end when he sees the impact that he's had that he didn't realize. And all these people are so appreciative of what he's done. That's always gotten to me because, you know, I've always loved Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job, about the remnant. Because in many ways, I've always felt very, very passionate about what I'm trying to do in life. And I'm trying to spread freedom, all this stuff. But most of the time, I feel like it's just spitting into the wind. Like most yeah. of the time, I just feel like I'm just, and, and to see him have that experience where he becomes so aware in such a short span of time of how the shit he was doing mattered. Right. And like that, that's always really got to me and, and been moving to me, but, but like you, as I got older, I'm like, you know, I understood more about the great depression and economics and just philosophically about the, the way that the way that the idea of altruism is used to shackle and manipulate and control people and to create a lose-lose situation and how like the, you know, the, the, the idea of self-sacrifice and doing the right thing, even when it's costly, great, but how that gets manipulated into, um, you know, you should always be running a business uh, as if everybody is your family member that you owe stuff to instead yeah. of as if it's a, you know, except for your shareholders, you don't owe them anything. You can take all their shit and burn it if you want to. That's fine. But all your customers, you got to, you know, so, um, so yeah, just watching that morph. And then, you know, so there was this phase where I'm like, well, why do I still like it so much, even though intellectually I know how yeah. silly it is. And then I kind of, you know, maybe matured through that and had the, uh, as, as TK would call it, the, the principle of charitable interpretation. Like, okay, well, let's give the most charitable interpretation to all of this. And let's, you know, rather than looking for ways that it's devious anti-business propaganda or whatever, let's just sort of step back a little bit. And I think it's, it's you can pull out a lot of really great messages from the, the plot and from many of the characters while also being aware of the fact that the most common takeaway for most people is probably going to be a little bit more of a mixed bag. It's going to be a little bit more tame. So like I can watch it and get out of it exactly what I want to get out of it and be inspired yeah. in just the ways. And I can like just ignore the rest and push it aside. Um, but I'm also aware that it's got some, it's got some af aspects that I think are culturally pernicious. So. Um, well, the, the thing that gets me in the movie is it's like some of it is, is all right in front of your face about how like how bad some of the stuff he does is or or how bad some of the messages but like they just they don't really comment on it like like so the big the big one that gets me is he's he hires his alcoholic buffoon uncle yes you know, uncle to, billy to, to manage all the money and he's doing it because he feels you know obviously i'm sure because he feels some kind of <laughs> obligation to keep this guy employed because he's he's a he's totally unemployable otherwise it's like an old senile guy that has squirrels living in his office and yeah. forgets everything. And you're, you're entrusting all your customers and your investors money with this dude, just cause he's related to you. Like that's like everything bad wrapped into one. It's bad yeah. business. It's bad personal life. It's bad. Like it's, <laughs> it's, to it's ne total negligence. I mean, it's, it, it displays a lack of, of character in some sense in, in that he's willing to put this before the, the lives of, of his customers. And, and, and you see what happens is the guy loses all the money. Yep. He loses all the money. And then of course, you know, Potter steals it. That's the thing. It's like, he loses the money and then Potter takes it and doesn't give it back to him. 
And so then the focus is on Potter more as like, and yeah, like what Potter does is shitty. He takes the money, he should give it back. But the bigger issue is, you know, really the issue that, that's glossed over in the theft is that Billy's the one who lost it and he's an idiot. And then George is the one who put Billy in that position, despite the fact that he knows he's an idiot. Like right. he, George is aware. George knows this. No, like and, if you if you hire a guy who has to tie strings around his fingers to remember where he's putting all of the bank's money, yeah, you probably shouldn't patronize that business. They probably deserve to go out of business. Yeah. You know? And so then you know he loses his customers' money. Everyone wants it's like it's a it's a big deal. And and you know in any other context that would like I mean that would be devastating to people's lives that you know his negligence. Um, and. Uh, but it's painted still as this sort of like, oh, you know, the, the, this is how great altruism is. And my thought was like, no, this is exactly why like altruism can lead to a death cult. Yes. Because you can you can be in a position where um, you've put your need to uh, to help others or help one, you know, to such an extent that you actually end up harming a ton of other people in the process. Yep. Um, so that's that's like, I think, a big part of the movie that that always uh, irks me. Yeah, um, you, I mean. You know, thinking about business, the impersonal nature of business is often ripped on by people who, who, you know, don't like markets. But I think the impersonal nature of business is one of the most civilizing forces in the world. Because, you know, if, if I need to get my toilet fixed and the only person that can do it is my family member, that's probably going to cause a bunch of strife. Right. Yeah. If in the very least, I'm going to bitch about them behind their back because they take a long time or, or they're going to take advantage of me or I'm going to be like, oh, don't charge me. And they're and you got all these guilt things going on. And you got and then you have. Something as simple as a mistake in your craft resulting in a broken personal relationship, which has effects on children and all these other things that are much more challenging to deal with and negative versus if I hire some plumbing service based on their reputation uh, in the market. And I don't know anybody personally, and they're just an anonymous person to me and they come and they do it. I'm not going to feel bad about giving them a bad review if they're bad, which is good because yep. it helps them get better and prevent messing, making bigger mistakes for other customers. Um, they're not going to feel bad about charging me whatever the market needs to, to charge to, you know, to, like it's going to create a harmonization because you don't have all these added layers of, familial and social obligation. And I think that's like a tremendous aspect of the market. That's a huge benefit. And so the fact that his business, like as a businessman, he makes so many decisions in the way this business is run. It's like the only reason he's there is because he feels a guilty guilt-based obligation to his father um, to be there. He doesn't even want to be running this business. Like, oh, well, look at all these great things he did for Bedford Falls. Well, what if he wouldn't have felt guilty and would have left Maybe the dude could have done great things for tens of millions of people in New York City or something. You know what I mean? Like there's no, the, the concept of opportunity cost isn't really there. Like they show us at the end, they show us the unseen good that his actions and his sacrifices caused, which is good. But they never show us the unseen cost, the unseen good that could have been done had he made other decisions. His brother comes home. Okay, I know I agreed to take over after you, but no, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna go do what I wanna do and get married and make more money and go be a war hero and all this other stuff. And he's yeah. just like, he just takes it, right? Yeah. It's like, well, why? And his brother goes on and they show, his brother does all these amazing heroic things. Why? Because he had the balls to not give in to guilt and stay in Bedford Falls, right? Yeah. So there's just, I, I just, I, that gets glossed over and I think it's important. Yeah, you don't, you don't see everything that he could have done. Um, and 
you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of sad watching it throughout the, at least for in the beginning, because it's just like, he just has one thing after another that keeps him from doing what he really wants to do. Right. And, and, it's, and it's always his putting, own, it's always his own feeling of, it's always him basically being manipulated by someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the way people use him, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, I mean, when you, when you look at it, it's like, geez, this, these people really, you know, are kind of mean. I mean, because like, and even, even when it, it like, okay, at the very end of the movie, everyone comes and saves them. Right. But leading up to that, like, you know, when there's a run on the bank, everyone's like, I want my money now. Yeah. Right. Everyone, yeah. Everyone's there. They're getting theirs. Yep. You know? Well, they had to come bail him out to keep that gravy train rolling. He couldn't be in jail or dead. You know? <laughs> the whole city needs to, you know, no, it's funny. If you zoom out and think about it, if you knew a person, this was a good friend of you, of yours in real life. And growing up as a kid, they were always super excited, had big dreams. They were really bright, really smart. Everybody liked them. They're good at what they did. And they had some dad who owned some small business in some small town. And their whole thing was, I want to get out. I'm going to do all this stuff. And, you know, their dad is making them feel guilty. And then their dad dies. And then they're like, well, I got to run the business for a while. And then their brother's supposed to dig. And then he just runs off and goes out into the world. And then they, and they keep making these decisions. They move into this shitty house they don't want to move into because they married the local girl that they, you know. And hired uncle who basically puts, commits horrible acts of perjury. All of the customers take all this guy's personal money and are super stingy about it during the run on the bank. And they won't give anything, but he's got to give everything you know, almost gets, almost gets thrown in jail because his stupid employee uncle that he felt bad for. And this dude is literally driven to suicide. He's going to kill himself because he's become so trapped by this yeah. sense of duty and obligation to all these people who are leeching off of him for his entire life. And he's like, well, I basically have screwed everything up and I, I got to, and even his suicide is an act of, I got to give my, I got to pay out my family, my life insurance policy. Cause that's all I'm good for anymore. Yeah. Right? You would, if you knew this guy all through this process, you'd be like, dude, stand up, get out of there. The business, the building and loan it's, it'll be fine. Or, or it'll go out of business if it needs to, that's okay. You don't, you don't owe it to anybody to do that. Like you would not advise your friend to do the things that in the end get praised as heroic in this movie, you'd tell him, I mean, yeah. he literally is pushed to the brink of suicide. It's yeah. like your choices and you're giving in and sacrificing your own desires for all these people have may, have brought you to the point of death. Now it's great that, that he gets bailed out and he doesn't die and he has this new perspective. But after that, I'd be like, but are you going to start changing it a little bit and not being so deferential to the opinions of others? <laughs> well, that, that's what I think about the end of the movie. It's like, it's like a beautiful scene when they all come in, they're singing his brother shows up and he's singing. He's like, he's like a toast to George Bailey, the richest man in town. Like that's like a, that's an amazing scene, yeah. but it's, it is kind of like, well, okay, what now? Because you know, this is going to happen again. <laughs> if you continue doing this, like the problem's not just solved, right? Like you, what are you going to, are you going to let your drunk uncle keep his job? <laughs> You know, are you going to continue uh, doing everything you're doing? Because it, it, it's not like just seeing the impact alone doesn't mean that the problems just go away. Like, like you still have fundamental, you know, moral and, um, uh, you know, I got practical business issues that, that will lead to, you know, the collapse of your business again. And, you know, the bankrupting of, of many of your customers, if you don't fix this problem, you know, yep. one temporary bailout's not enough, Right. We need like a, we need to make like a sequel where like 
you know, it ends in that moment. Every time a bell rings and, and then it's all happy. And then he's like, it immediately cuts. And he's like, uncle Billy, you crazy senile piece of shit. You're fired. <laughs> yeah. right? And then he starts, okay, now I'm going to collect from all these customers that have, they've been out there having a good time and not paying me back. And now we're, <laughs> you know, he just like, turns he goes the full corner. Potter. He, yeah. He should go so sell dressing the like Potter. to Potter. Be like, I'm selling it to Potter. Honey, we're moving to wherever, you know, Amsterdam, we're going to go, I'm going to go be an engineer or whatever I want to do. Well, there was this this scene where Potter, um, so like there are all the customers are worried. They don't have their money and Potter calls and he's like, I'll, I'll bail everybody out. You know, Um, that's seen as like, oh, Potter is capitalizing on misfortune. Right. But like, to me, to me, it's kind of like that the, the best kind of businesses are the ones that find opportunities to turn people's misfortune into profit for both parties. Like that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. And Potter, the reason he's even in that position to be able to help these people, you know, is because he didn't do stupid business decisions like George Bailey, where he runs a business where he's not making any money and not requiring anyone to pay anything back. You know? So we got, yeah. So, so we now need to make the case for uh, Potter as the hero of the movie. So, I mean, first it's hard to imagine Bedford Falls be in a better city if he wasn't there this one very successful businessman who clearly is you know uh got the resources that's funding a lot of stuff that that's well, here in the city remember so that's i'm gonna i'm gonna hit on that point because remember yeah he yeah says, okay bring it on make, make the potter case. has um like they're like i'm not gonna sell the business to potter because that'll give potter control over everything basically you know it's like you want your you want this is the one thing you can't control and it hates you that's or you hate it right so it implies that like, like Bedford Falls is a pretty great place. And it implies yeah. that like Potter is, is basically financing almost everything else, you know, that the business and loans is not doing. Right. So what's funny about that is then when you go see the world in which George Bailey doesn't exist, just because that one bu- building alone <laughs> doesn't exist. Now, everything that everything else that Potter is financed is like turned into like prostitution and like you know uh, he was uh, just uh, waiting uh, to turn yeah. the drugstore into a brothel until yeah brothels and and, 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 and uh, you know nasty bars and the women are all like you know slutted up and it's just like one thing after another you know and it's like the, the well, most realistic thing about the entire movie actually is the scene where the cop just starts open firing on a on a person in the middle of the street <laughs> 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 that is how cops are so it's it's like um I just thought that seems kind of funny because it's like, well, the Bedford Falls is a pretty great place and Potter's funding most of it. Um, and, and no, like the message, the, the message that, you know, that one altruistic business that doesn't exist, suddenly everything Potter has done has turned into this horrible thing. Like that's, that's just stupid. Um, yeah, so, so Potter is, you know, sort of the, the financial undergirding of this town, probably owns a lot of the real estate, whatever. And then He's one of the only, as he says, he's one of two people that kept his head during the banking crisis and whatever. And, and, you know, he did it in a much more sustainable way than just giving away every dollar of his own personal money and hoping he'd get it back. And he, so he's able to stay open and do all like, which is incredibly important. I mean, imagine if, if your bank, you go to get your money, there's a run on the bank, you can't get any of it. Yeah. And then, you know, and your friends out of a bank, that's like, I'll give you 50 cents mm-hmm. on the dollar for every dollar you had in that other bank. I'll let yeah. you like, oh my God, that'd be a lifeline, right? That's a lifesaver. That's huge. Yeah. Keeps his head with that. He's an incredibly good judge of talent. I mean, first of all, he was on the board of the building and loan, right? Like he was one of the yeah. board members and he understood like, okay, Peter Bailey's dead. Let's just fold this thing up. 
like, cause nobody else is, is good enough to do it. Cause he yeah. didn't think George was going to stay. And he, he recognized that the other, you know, like the other people were like, well, maybe uncle Billy, whatever. He also is a good judge of talent. He recognized Jimmy Stewart is like, Hey, you're a bright young man. He makes him a kick-ass offer. Like yeah. I understand what you want in life. You want to see the world. You want to, you want to do nice things for your wife that you can't afford to do now. You're really bright and you're basically underutilized in this town. I want to elevate you and let you put your full powers to use. And there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this. Like it's a valuable message. The whole facing that moment where you're, you have the offer to sell your soul, so to speak. And you say no. Right. So if you interpret it that way, that George really does not want that life. He wants something else. He cares more about some other value or virtue. And he resisted that temptation. You know, it's like resisting the ring of power in Lord of the Rings. That's a powerful moment in any movie. But if you look at what's actually being offered in the way that Potter is framing it, it's like this dude reckon I felt that way with a lot of young talented people I come across. I'm like, hey, you're dramatically underutilized over here working for your dad's landscaping company. Like, come, come work for me. Let's let's I'm going to see what you can do. You, you got all kinds of skills. And like Potter's giving him something that's pretty awesome. And he, and he recognizes, you know, he recognizes the value there. That's that's good. You know, being a good businessman. Well, the, the George, main the dig on him George is that, turns it down is not yeah. because he doesn't want it. George turns it down because he feels this like duty, you know, to stop Potter from, you know, I don't know what controlling more of the town or something like that. Be, like, because his dad and Potter were enemies and he feels like the, his dead dad, he feels more obligation to him than to his own dreams. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because you can see George wants everything that Potter's offering. Like, Potter's not giving him a bad deal. It's like a, it's like a totally kick-ass offer. And it's not even clear like what harm would be done to George's life if he took it. You know, it seems like a good offer, right? And, and it, yeah, it's about his obligation to his dad, about making sure that Potter doesn't, you know, control the town. I mean, everything else, whatever, you know, but um, yeah, it's just funny because it's, it's like not really, it's, it's interpreted, I think, as people as like a, a don't sell your soul message, but I don't really see it as like that because it's, it's not like, it, it's it's something George wants. It is his soul. And yeah. he's, he's actually literally going against it. Right. You know? Yeah. 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 I've, you know, like I said, I, I have, because I have all these nostalgic reasons for loving the movie, I have developed the skill of retrofitting things into a message that I do like, yeah. even though it's not really there. Like if I'm being objective about it, that's not a scene that I think is really worth celebrating, but I'll just sort of choose to be like, well, let's just, let's just use it as like a rough metaphor for selling your yeah, yeah, yeah. soul and whatever. Um, yeah. It's funny. I mean, so they definitely, they definitely take Potter from that point on after George declines him, they throw in this kind of obsessive vindictive component. That's like not admirable where he's like, well, now I just want to destroy him just because, or he's, you know, gloating that he's found the money. He's, he wants to call the police and see him in jail. Okay. Those parts fine. I got you. By that point, the dude's like freaking old and senile and like, you know, got this business rivalry, but sure. That's not admirable. Well, and, 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 and his personality is, like, is not likable, but that's the whole thing. The idea that the, the nicer person who you'd rather have a beer with yeah, is either a better person morally or even, or even worse is better for the world in terms of the outcomes of what they produce in the, in the world of commerce. Um, that's a really crappy message, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, and, and so Potter, that's a Potter would not get to where he is by focusing on petty vendettas against tiny, irrelevant businesses. 
you know, that, that like, like the whole thing that like Potter's going to spend all of his time trying to, maybe he wouldn't later in life, you know, whatever. Cause he's bored and old and senile and, and spiteful, but like, that's not how he got successful is trying to go, you know, because it's just like, that's a complete distraction. Say what you want about his character, whether he's a nice person or not, whether he's should be more charitable. Yeah. The, or not. the like, kind of guy that the kind of guy that's like the president is on line one, you know, uh, is not the kind of guy that's like, put him on hold because I got to figure out this Bailey problem. You know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So there, there's a few other characters that I think are, are interesting um, for maybe other reasons. I love Clarence, the, the angel. And what I love about him, I, I think he brings something really interesting and a little different to the movie is that, He's basically like, he's like a good, he's like a good economist. He's like, I'm going to work with what I've got. Right. So he he comes in just sort of, oh, I'm going to just tell this guy to be a better person. I'm going to persuade him. And then he realizes really quickly, this isn't going to work. And so he's like, okay, I have to work with what he already wants to do and help him see that what he wants is actually not to take his life by letting him experience literally experience yeah what he claims to want to experience and i love that that's such a great like you know because i'm i'm a i've always been into ideas and trying to convince people of ideas and persuade and then even in business i've done a lot of stuff in sales and that's been like such a that realization learning how trying to convince somebody through argumentation of something is exhausting and usually doesn't work, especially if they're a reasonably intelligent, talented person. If you can convince them just by telling them, they're probably not a super high value person, not like not a super high uh, intelligence or productivity person if it's that easy to convince them. But to say, okay, my customers, my employees, whoever, what what do they tell me that they want? What do they say that they want? And then I'm going to take that seriously and I'm going to say, okay, let me paint a picture for you of you experiencing what you're telling me that you want. And then oftentimes they'll be like, oh, wait, I guess I don't want that, right? Oh, okay. Or maybe, yes, this is exactly what I want. So I just, I love his character. I mean, he's funny and well acted as well, but, um, and how he has this almost antagonistic relationship with like the other angels in heaven. He's this like immature, you know, um, goofy guy, but, but the brilliance of him working with what he's been given, um, I just think is such a, like that to me is what makes the plot become so, so magical. Yeah. Like the, the question, what would this mean if it were actually true is like a better question than trying to convince someone like with like theory and argument, you know, about, about whether this is, you know, a good thing or not. It's like, well, think about what would it really mean if you didn't exist, George? Like what would have happened? Well, what would have happened is that your brother would have drowned in the lake that day, right? Um, what would have happened? The, the, my favorite, what would have happened, by the way, which I, 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 I love using this line, is he sees his wife and he's like, she's an old maid. And she like, literally, she's just as pretty. She's gorgeous, you know, she's just as pretty, just as young. Her hair's pulled up and she's got glasses. She has right? glasses. Yeah, but like, she's an old maid and she sees George and, she, and George is trying to talk to her. She never married. Oh man. And she yeah, like th- passes out. It would have been worse to like, see her like married to some horrible abusive person or something that's what i thought you know, right yeah that part was always funny too guy. yeah it's like she's just working at the library yeah and, and that 
maybe that started the trope of you take a beautiful woman and you put glasses on her and then we're all supposed to believe she's ugly. You know, that, yeah. that, that cinematic uh, technique. Um, yeah, it's funny how it's rare that you take a great, well, maybe it's not rare. I can think of some examples. But when you think of like the, the classic myths, uh, the classic myths and, and stories that have become like just so a part of a culture, even implicitly, to do kind of a retelling or at least or at least a clearly inspired by is a little bit challenging. And to the, the fact that you can take Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which you have a, a somewhat similar thing, although in this case, you know, George Bailey is a good guy, but he doesn't realize he's a good guy until he it gets shown this alternate universe. Scrooge is a bad guy. He doesn't realize he's a bad guy until he's shown this alternate universe. But the, the same idea that the way that the supernatural is used to show you a, a parallel reality, so to speak, yeah. to, to redo that and modernize it for the time and then have it become its own, like almost equally as impactful um, standalone, like many people, myself included, I always watch a Christmas Carol or a couple versions of it even, and it's a wonderful life. And I don't see them as the same story, even though there's clearly a lot of heavy influence in there. Like that's a pretty incredible um, testament to the, I guess, just the storytelling ability of, uh, was it Frank, Frank Capra? Frank uh, Capra. Yeah. And the acting. I mean, the acting was great. I mean, Jimmy oh. Stewart's like one of the best, I think, actors ever. And especially out of that time, it's just an incredible, incredible actor. And it's one yeah. of those movies, like, it's like, because it's, there's no, there's not really special effects. There's, it's actually got a lot of dialogue, you know? And just the actual acting that's not yeah. masked by um, special effects or camera camera angles or, yeah. you know, swapping scenes real fast, which is kind of one of the techniques they do now where you, you get like a scene every five seconds, right? You do um, get the classic, which is in, I think, almost every Jimmy Stewart movie. The classic, uh, slowly he turns his face towards the camera and he's got yeah. the... Which is gets like, I mean, that's what's great. Again, this and A Christmas Carol. Heather and I were just watching the uh, George C. Scott Christmas Carol last night. And she's like, I forgot how it was made in like the maybe early mid eighties. She's like, I forgot how like, this is basically a horror movie. And there are, there are elements of it's a wonderful life too, with the music yeah. and the lighting. And it's like, you know, when he comes to the end of his experience of him not existing and he's, you know, the, and it's like, Oh yeah. It's, it's terrifying for him. Yeah. 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 The way um, the, uh, the, 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 I don't, I don't know which, uh, which Scrooge, which uh, Carol you're talking about, but I know there's, there's one that's like actually legitimately kind of terrifying as a kid when he sees, especially the last ghost, it's like yes. horrifying. Yeah. Um, speaking of other Jimmy Stewart movies. So like Mr. Smith goes to Washington is very similar where like, I, I liked that growing up because it's like this great movie about idealistic Senator goes to Washington and realizes how corrupt it is and how, you know, you, uh, and it's like, it's, it, and, and here's a guy he's fighting for a lost cause. It's one of the lines, like lost causes are worth fighting for. And he's yeah, the, the underdog speaking. that he goes there and the machine just tries to crush him. And somehow he refuses to be crushed and he stands yeah. up and makes a dent in the machine, you know? Yeah. And he gives his great speech. And at the end of the speech too, like the corrupt Senator, the ones, particularly the one who's opposing him tries to kill himself saying like, I'm not worthy of the office, you know, like he's right. Everything he says is right. He has this manic moment, the Senator. It's a great, great thing. It's really great. I mean, I just watched that in preparation for this because uh, th th that scene in particular, but in, in Jimmy, he, he has a lot of great lines in it about individual liberty and uh, personal responsibility and stuff. 
And he's given this talk, this speech, and he, he actually passes out himself at the end of the speech because he's just so exhausted. Like his hair is frazzled, he's sweaty. Yeah, because he was like filibustering for like days, I think. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But what he asks for, the, the action, when, you, when you look at what he's actually creating, I, I joked on, on it's kind of like a, a American Hitler youth kind of thing. <laughs> you know, he, I, and, I, and, I, and like seriously, he wants a civic boys camp where boys go to some government camp to learn how to be like responsible patriots and do like good community community work. I mean, it's like, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, like that's the thing that like is inserted as his cause after he's giving this big talk about individual liberty and, you know, freedom. And he wants a government camp for boys, you know, and that's the thing he's fighting for. And, and, and it's, it's like, it's, it's just, it's just another example of, of, uh, bad ideas inserted in between really beautiful, you know, storytelling and good ideas, genuinely good ideas. Like it's a good speech besides that. You know, it's funny because we complain about Hollywood now, you know, having propaganda or whatever. And you certainly can find like almost any war film made in the last 20 years. If you look, it's usually funded by the army or the CIA or the defense department, or, you know, there certainly is propaganda. Hey, let's make a, I know that the, a lot of the early spy movies and spy TV shows and like, um, you know, investigator type shows were funded by governments like, Hey, let's create the idea that spies are cool so that when people hear about them doing horrible stuff, they'll be like, Hey, it's just James Bond stuff, you know? So like we can see that now, but, but now there's such a diversity of media that you can also see a lot of other types of stuff. But back in, back in the day when these movies were made, I mean, Hollywood was, I mean, it was it like you produced in Hollywood and that's it. There was literally like two or three studios. Yeah. And so it's so funny, anything made in that era, it always somehow manages to work in like Franklin Roosevelt is great. Yeah, it's it's always Roosevelt. about like the, the works programs and like, yep. you know, I mean, you see it in it's a wonderful life. It basically gives you this telling of, you know, and, and also very like World War II, you know, it's everybody was just dying to make sacrifices and to, yeah. and to volunteer to be the warden that said, stop using so many tires. And, to, and this is this glorious thing where we all come together. And once you, you know, get older and you read your Howard Zinn or your Thaddeus Russell or your whatever, you're like, oh my God, this stuff is so messed up. And, and people weren't like that. I mean, there was a huge movement that was opposed to yep. this stuff. There's, there's a reason they had to use force to force people to, you know, not do their whatever food rations and all this stuff. And obviously the, all of the, you know, boondoggles with, uh, with FDR, um, is just a mess. And so like, it's just funny. You will see some movies. I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's about the Tennessee Valley authority, basically just flooding everybody's homes and, and farms and stuff against their will is made. Uh, it's black and white. I don't remember when, but you will see a few, but it's pretty rare. Usually you'll see a movie and they always have this very new deal. I mean, they even took Annie, which was a comic, a cartoon that was anti new deal. Yeah. And they turned it into the old original movie, which is this giant pro new deal, you know, story. Um, so like, I always imagine that Hollywood was this new, powerful, powerful tool then and governments figured out pretty quick, especially with FDR, let's wield this thing to create this new progressive, whatever society where people associate Americanism with big giant public works problems and big giant government camps for kids to go learn how to be good patriots. And, you know, these kind of things that were not at all part of American culture, certainly for the first hundred years, it was much the idea that you're going to have this one overarching federal identity 
controlled from Washington and it's the highest good you can do is be subservient to it. Like that comes through, that comes through in subtle ways. Well, the, the way they did it too is, is so it wasn't in a, it wasn't just like, like the communists did it where they had like an, like, you know, the ideals of communist, like they, they sort of couched it in the ideals of individualism still in America, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was elected, you know, not, as kind of like individualistic sort of, you know, president. Right. And, and, and the movies, like they don't dare say, you know, man is the, the tool of the state, you know, or man, man is you know, like, like communism is much more explicit, you know, about, about man being, you know, a cog in the community. Um, what these movies do is it's like all about individual liberty and individual freedom. And like that stuff really resonates and that's, that's the American identity, but it's like, it's like a, it's like a federal identity, you know? Yes. And, um, they, they have the Liberty in, uh, Bell in the, in the opening and closing of the movie, you know, it's like it, this imagery is just, yeah. Well, and it's a wonderful life you see. Uh, so I was, when you were mentioning the Franklin Roosevelt works projects, like that's what George Bailey, Bailey's housing project looks like. It, it's very much like a, you know, subprime sort of government loans. Everybody gets a house. Everybody needs a house. Let's all, you know, get, and they're all in these like brand new, like, you know, sort of cookie cutter box homes in a suburb. It looks exactly like, you know, what you would imagine, you know, a government works project to look like, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, that, and that's like, that's, that's the great thing. George is the noble guy for helping people do that because everybody, he says something, one line was, was like, he, it's like, do you want them to have to work all their life just to be able to have a home or something like that? Like he, yeah. he says something like that where he, yeah, they want it. They want it now. You know what, what save, save up until their kids are all grown. They, they want it. They want to consume now before yeah. they've saved. It's like this Keynesian yeah, thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Let them consume first and let them pay it off later. You know, but like, there's a good message in there too. Like there yeah. is like yes. beneath that, like, it's like, look, like, don't, like, don't put everything off till the future. Like, like, you know, you, you have your kids. Now my dad was always good at that. He, he always told me, he's like, you're only, he's like, I'm only going to have kids once, you know? He's like, so I, I did front load some things in my life because I wanted you guys to have that experience. And I wanted to have that experience with you. And I knew that like, you're not going to be young forever. Right. Um, like that's true. There's good message in that. But when it's like, you know, to such an extent that you're, you're giving out bad loans to people basically and running an unprofitable business that ultimately collapses and is going to cause a lot more harm when all these people end up having to sell their homes, <laughs> you know, because I, they I can't love, pay I for love them. When he's, like, when he's like, all right, let's take a look at this loan. This guy barely makes, you know, whatever. He's driving taxi, sitting on his brains in a taxi cab all day in this tiny sleepy town. And you just gave him a loan for whatever. And uh, he's like, there's no references. There's no whatever. There's no whatever. Yeah. And George is like, well, I can vouch for him. He's like, oh, is he a personal friend of yours? Yeah, he's a personal friend of mine. He's a good <laughs> guy. And he's like, so basically the way you run this company is if you shoot pool with somebody, you give them a loan. And, and they're yeah. like, yeah. And they make that to look like it's a great thing. You're like, no, that's how you get scandal and bankruptcy and all yeah. these horrible things, you know? Yeah. And they, and they show that it happens. They just don't show that like it's like a bad <laughs> thing. They just say, well, it'll, it'll work out in the end. You know, it's all good. What will happen is the community will all come together and give you the $8,000, which would be like whatever these days, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. Don't yeah. worry about it. Everybody will just be uh, altruistic and we'll get you. Um, oh, what was I going to, oh, uh, one thing that's funny, you can see the, you can see the differences in the way that like uh, sort of a, I don't know, progressive leftist ideology changes over the years. Like, and this is a very, very subtle, 
but it's hard for me to imagine this this in this age a movie where the protagonist is this very much you know like the, where the message is very much about how like this person's so wonderful and they're the best person ever and greedy business people are trying to stop them to have them plow down beautiful fields of buttercups where people hunt rabbits to build these shitty looking box homes and like <laughs> and, uh, yeah. like you wouldn't do that instead it would be like well he stopped them from building and and you know created a nature preserve or something. yeah 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 no he, he- he, he would not fit into the progressive criticisms today. Like he, he would definitely be considered like just as bad, you know, yeah. cause he's, he's, I mean, he, he, he's building all this shit. He's destroying the environment. I mean, you he know, wanted, he wanted to build big buildings and he was a fan of, you know, economic growth and, you know, well, and he uh, still wanted... wants to be rich. It's like, he's not a guy who like yeah. say what you want. He's not a guy who doesn't like money or anything like that. He yep. wants to be rich. He wants to have nice things. He's just putting other things first. But, you know, it's, it, he never once, like, decries wealth in the movie or anything like yeah. that. You know, whereas, like, that would, that's what you would get today is, like, that wealth itself is the source of the evil. You know, that money itself is the source of the evil. He doesn't yep. say that. Yep. The, uh, the scene where Potter gives him a cigar and he keeps the cigar. Uh, yeah. I think that was the first time I remember being like, ooh, that cigar looks good. When I was like, I don't know, I was like 10 or something. Like, yeah. that looks really good. Though he's, He seems to be enjoying that thing. Uh, so maybe that movie subliminally programmed me to enjoy cigars. I don't know. But something <laughs> something about it. Sometimes in those old movies, my wife always says this about the food. She's like, the food in movies always makes me so hungry. Like, even when it's just the old. Oh, okay. Sorry. Random segue. I was thinking about food. They're eating. I still am like, <laughs> I didn't notice it as a kid. But now I still am in shock every time I watch the movie and they've got Annie, the housekeeper, who's this black woman. And he like smacks her on the ass and he's like, Annie, there's a moon out tonight. I'm in love with you. And like, they're all just engaging this. I'm just like, how has this not been canceled yet? It's unimaginable. You know? Yeah, no, you couldn't put that in the movie today for sure. They're going to Photoshop that out or else they'll come out and say, Frank Capra's grandson says that Annie was actually a man uh, who was, you know, uh, transitioned to a woman or something like that. They'll come up with some way. To- <laughs> yeah, it's just like casually sexually harassing their black uh, housekeeper, you know, and it's <laughs> right. all like fun. It's all fun and games. I think he was like chasing her around the house at one point. Or yeah, something with like, like a that. broom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those oh, old man. movies have so much stuff like that, though. I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of and and. and you know, in the, I guess in the, uh, in the defense of the, uh, uh, progressive, like some of that stuff legitimately is like bad. Like I, oh, I yeah. would, you know, but like, I also am not in favor of canceling because like, I, I think it's interesting to see because that, that stuff did happen. Yes. And, yeah, and to- trying to like whitewash it out of movies and say like, <laughs> oh, well, because it was bad we can't, we can't watch a movie that has that like, well, okay. But like, why? Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think having, that's a really important point because there is a lot of, uh, in, you know, anything, once you get to black and white, there's a lot of, especially depictions of the way females relate to men. Like there's a lot of movies where there's like borderline rapey, abusive sort of things where it's like the I mean, level it, of, it's some, a wonderful life is like that. Right. A, yeah. I mean, even though talk yeah. about that, there's like the rape, the rapey scene where, um, you know, he, he goes into the house and marries there when she's like with her mom 
he like he kind of grabs her you know and they're, yeah they're like they're, he's like all mad but he's like angry that he knows he's in love with her but he doesn't want to be and he's yelling at her and then he's he just yelling at her he gives her this like violent kiss and my yeah. kids are always like that's so weird and i like didn't know didn't realize how we, as a kid i remember thinking like whatever kissing ugh, roll my eyes but i'm like i watch it now and i'm like this is like quite shocking and like slightly disturbing you know yeah, yeah. no it's it's very it, i mean this the scene like um another uh, the uh ayn rand fountainhead movie has that too where he like of course it's kind of in the book too but he comes in and like literally like you know sort of like throws her to the ground you know and it's like jeez, like you put this and, and it's but it's it's like it's supposed to be seen as a romantic scene you know yeah, yeah. and it's like well, well i mean that's kind of cringy so like yeah sexual stuff racial stuff like there's definitely things that you look at and it's like, oh man, I, I can't believe that was in a movie. And that also like, I wouldn't want to see that in the movie today. Yeah, that that society has, it's a good reminder. Like society has progressed in some ways that I think are important. And I think it's easy to get way too reactionary against sort of the modern, whatever, leftist, politically correct stuff and go overboard and be like, well, anything that therefore they're just crazy. And this was just, traditional masculinity and whatever it's like no there's a lot of really dark shit that happened uh in in that aegis and that but i love not whitewashing it out or not changing it because it's really fascinating to me and you get this better from pop culture than you do from history books or things like that it's really fascinating to be able to go back and see where the overton window was at any given time like it's not like everyone in society did everything depicted in the movies but the fact that you could have a movie that depicted something tells you something about what was acceptable, even if it was edgy or borderline during an era. And you get to kind of see how that morphs over time. And that's really interesting. And and it's really important to be reminded of the good and the bad. There are things that were depicted in movies in the past that I think are great that can't be depicted anymore and vice versa. There's some stuff like you just said. So I think that's just such a great way to like understand cultural history is to kind of look at these artifacts and, and, and not ever pretend like they were, mainstream because it's easy for me to forget like when i watch a hitchcock movie like that is not a reflection of the mainstream sort of view uh of the world at that time those were edgy risque movies for the time but they were but they were acceptable you could get away with it you know yeah if they're acceptable you can get away with it and if they're popular at the time it tells you something about the culture even if that's not like it's not like everyone it's not like everyone had a black maid that they were slapping on the ass and right. chasing around the house right i mean it's it's but, like but 50 that, shades of gray is it's like 50 shades of gray was like a bestseller yeah but you don't really encounter people frequently who are like i hope my boss chains me up in his cellar you know what i mean yeah 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 <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and and i i just feel like like yeah, the, the, the progressives, they're not always, they're, they're right about a lot of stuff. I mean, and, and, and like this, the, that ideology doesn't come from like, it's not created out of thin air. You know, they, they, it's reaction to very real problems or things that happened in a culture. The problem where they go is, is that they think that they can, I think a couple of things, they think that they can fix these things overnight just by like banning them or something, yep. which is like literally, that's not how the culture changes. You can't just like browbeat people into submission or ban something or or, or not allow it to be put in movies and, and say like you've solved the problem. In fact, sometimes you create worse problems by doing that, I think, and you create another kind of reactionary movement against you that refuses to take anything you say seriously, which is kind of like what we have now. Yep. Um, and then also that they want to just like scrub everything from history and rather than allow us to still watch and enjoy stuff and trust that people are smart enough and they, they really are 
to distinguish. Like I've never seen anybody. I certainly never had to, the, the, from watching that movie to think, oh yeah, it's great to go around slapping your housekeeper on the ass, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, sexually harassing her or, or grab a woman like that and plant an aggressive, violent kiss on her, you know, or, or scream at her like that in the, uh, in the room with her mom. Like, I don't, none of that stuff. I, I the takeaway from the movie is not that that stuff's okay. It's just, to me, it's kind of interesting drama. Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't need my movie characters to be perfect for yeah. my own era you know and, and that is that is a couple things that i you know back to the uh credit side of the ledger for this movie a couple things you mentioned one is i do love the character portrayals even though this is kind of a mythical tale the characters in some ways they're sort of caricatures but in other ways they're quite flawed so like yeah his dad it is portrayed not in an entirely positive light, the way his dad is trying to manipulate him. Um, you know, he, Jimmy Stewart himself is portrayed as like not very admirable, especially in the end when he's out there, he's, you know, punches that teacher in the face. Uh, yeah. Although, you know, the teacher's husband, um, I did like when he yelled at the public school teacher, that was great. But, uh, but when he goes and punches her husband in the face at the bar and gets like, yeah. this is not admirable. And like there's warts and stuff and there's the, his struggles are portrayed in a way that kind of lets you feel that he's still a flawed person. Um, yeah. And, and then the other side of the credit ledger. So you're talking about progressivism. Not everything is bad. I think this movie is one example of where you can, you can get some of the good elements because it's, it's definitely motivated by that kind of progressive ideal. And, and one of the core things that progressivism sort of realizes or like the first insight of it, the core insight is about power, is about power relations. And they sort of obsess over all this stuff, but like the way that power can be, uh, is very abused and ought to be seen skeptically and how you see, you know, the, the power that the danger of, let's say a potter who's on the phone with the president and he's in charge of who gets drafted and yeah. all this <laughs> other stuff, right? You can see like power yeah. is dangerous but here's where the progressives are like, it's like they almost don't take their own insight about power seriously enough. I think they see, wow, humans are corruptible. And if you give them power, they'll abuse people. And the answer isn't, let's not like have them have so much power because they're corruptible. The answer is, well, let's not have them be corruptible anymore. Yeah. So let's program everybody to be a better person who doesn't ever think of themselves first, which to me is a fool's errand, right? It's, yeah. It, It'd be great if it was possible, but it's not possible. It's that unconstrained vision. And so the response to power isn't, well, let's create incentives that makes power have the smallest area of operation possible. And it has the least leeway to be abused. And you've got competition and you've got all these things that try to keep it in check as much as possible. Instead, you know, working with human greed, uh, instead it's like, boy, this power sure does kill people. Let's make people less greedy so that when they have power, they'll do good things with it instead of bad things. And, yeah. and you kind of see that throughout the movie, right? It's like, well, as long as, as long as the, the, you know, as long as people become better, nicer, more altruistic then power, that's how you overcome abusive power. Yeah. It's like, well, no, that, you, you can't, those, those people will get crushed by power or if they get power, they'll become corrupted by it. Right. Like you gotta, you always got to treat power seriously, not just when it's in the wrong hands. Um, but I do like that. I think it does a fairly good job in some ways of at least implying the dangers of somebody having too much power. Like there is a danger if one guy owns everything in the town, a potential danger, that danger gets worse yeah. when you get government on their side or they take over the government. But the solution isn't, 
okay, well then everybody just be a better person. Like, of course, everybody should be a better person, but like, or, or let's give power to the good guys. Right. That's where it goes astray. Well, yeah. Or, or like, like, so George Bailey's whole scheme is let me operate an uncompetitive business model to compete against the competitive business model (laughs) of Potter. And it's like, well, if you want, if you, I mean, the, the, the beauty of a market of a capitalist market is that you've got a bunch of people who are all greedy, all competing. You've got, you've got a bunch of potters. There's no, there's no power, right? In a yep. sense. Yep. You know, the, the way a potter arises is almost like if, if, if everybody else is just like a stupid schmuck who's just like being taken advantage of, allowing themselves to be taken advantage of, running an unprofitable business. Like I always used to, in college when I would go and um, there was like a club fundraiser thing. I think it was in high school, yeah. And I, I, uh, I told there was the, my, my socialist friends, I'm like, let's set up a table and you guys just give everything away for free and I'll sell my stuff and we'll see what happens, you know? <laughs> and, uh, like, like, you know, if, if, like, if you, if you care about, if you care about not having that di- dynamic, you would want everybody seeking profit, yeah. you know, yeah. George is not doing himself any favors by running a business that can't sustain itself. Yep. So <clears throat> yeah, I think that's, you know, it'd be like, like, like but yeah, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair point though, that like, yes, like the power you know, it does, it does show the danger of that. And the reason you should be concerned. Actually, one funny thing about the movie, this is totally unrelated, but more related to the, the Overton window topic is that scene where George is drunk driving and he like crashes into a tree. Yeah. And it's just like, he's just not even like in trouble really. He just kind of yep. gets out and just walks away, leaves the car there, you know? And it's like, it's just that he, he's not even punished for that, you know? Yep. Cause like, it wasn't, it wasn't the same thing back yep. then. You know, these days, like if you show a, you know, a drunk driving crash where the guy just kind of goes home and is fine and no one really cares or brings it up again, <laughs> you know, and like you wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so there's, there's a, there's another lens that you can use to interpret some of the business decision scenes that I, that is more positive. So let's sort of like put aside some of the details and from a zoom out a little bit and say, this is something that I think people fail to appreciate about business owners, about entrepreneurs. This guy owns his business and shit starts to hit the fan in the economy and all of his customers are coming, making unreasonable demands. Like their agreement was that their money would sit there for a certain amount of time and they want it now. And they're not entitled to that by contract. So, but he does what business owners have to do. He's like, okay, I'll take the hit and I'll make sure that you're take, even though I don't owe it to you legally, I can see that you're freaking out and I want to keep you happy and I want to keep your business. I will take my own personal money that I was going to use on my own honeymoon to make sure. And then he eventually, at least it looks like it, the business does get back on its feet and it does eventually start to do well because he weathered that. And like, if you know, and I know you do because your dad is a business over and has been your whole life, you know what that's like. Shit starts to go down. Some employee screws something up. Customers make unreasonable demands. And a small business owner, especially who's very close to those things, how many times do they give up, you know, their vacation or their personal, you know, savings account to, to go and bail out the company to make sure it's okay to make those sacrifices to, and like, if that's, if we're going to look at the admirable qualities of that part of the story, it's not because he cared so much about people and he didn't care about himself. It's that this is what being a business owner forces you to do. And yeah. when people talk about they're exploiting employees or they're exploiting customers, I'm always like, you have no idea. I mean, even with a big giant company like Walmart, they're like, oh, employees are exploited. 
I'm like, I've worked in retail. Do you know who's exploited? The freaking owners. Do you know what the employees do? They yeah. never show up for their shifts. They steal shit not yep. constantly. Employee theft is the number one cost center for retail places. Yeah. They treat customers like garbage. They don't help them when they're on the clock. They take breaks that are too long. Exploitation goes both ways. And usually yeah. the person at the end of the day that has to absorb the hit and make sure that the customers are, aren't mad. I mean, I've had employees that have screwed over customers and screwed me over. And guess yeah. who has to go smooth it over and take the hit personally, right? And so, like, there's something there that I like, that portrayal of the, the reality of being a business owner. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he does it for different reasons almost, but yeah, like yeah. they don't they don't portray the motivations I would like to see, but you could find but it's true. It's the, every business owner I know have had situations where they basically are floating payroll, trying to hope that their checks don't bounce trying to figure out what they're going to do. Like you, as an employee, you don't deal with any of that. And, and I've seen, you know, firsthand, it's like where, where situations are like the employees is like, look, if I don't pay you, I know, I know you're going to like sue me too. Yeah. And I'm going to have to pay you way more, but like, you don't realize like how much I'm suffering. Like, are you, would you be willing to go without a paycheck? Yeah. Cause that's what I'm doing, you know, but would you be willing to do it? You know? And I can't, I can't go and sue you. You know, you can sue me if I, if I'm late. You know, and, and people they don't appreciate that at all. And that, that yeah. side of business is, is almost never, I think, depicted in, in movies or glorified in movies, like the sacrifices that a business owner actually has to make. Um, so it's kind of nice to see uh, in that movie. If you, if you look at it through that lens, like, yeah, like this, that's, that's not abnormal what George is doing. Yep. That's like and very common. And there's a component to it where like, ideally it shouldn't be common. Like your goal to run your business is to not have to do that. And that's where a lot of small business owners get really trapped. So it makes me think of the book, The E-Myth, which is all about like, hey, small business owners, if your business only succeeds when you work 80 hours a week, you got to fix something in your business. You got to, yeah. you can't just, as the book says, you can't just work in your business. You got to work on your business, let others work in it. And so like, even though there's something noble and admirable that, about that kind of hustle and self-sacrifice. It's also like, hey, George Bailey should have been reading the E-Myth because look at the way that these two guys weathered this storm. One of them, he had a bunch of savings ready. He was prepared for this. Now, maybe because yeah. he was buddies with the president and he knew the crash was coming. I don't know. But, you know, Potter was, he was well-equipped. So yeah. he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to sell his carriage or whatever. To, to Whereas George Bailey wasn't, right? He was, he was a little too much in la-la land and wasn't, he, he didn't take his business seriously. He's letting Uncle Billy run stuff and whatever. So what, what happens when it goes down? Well, he saves it, but only by sacrificing his honeymoon and his, you know, nest. Yeah, he wouldn't necessarily, in that particular case, he wouldn't necessarily even be in that position if he had made smarter yes. decisions and run his business like a business and not like a, a obligation slash community charity project. You know? Which is true of, of, of most small businesses. And again, this is something I think is underappreciated by anti-market people. Like most business failures are because people are not shrewd enough. They're really, yeah, yeah, exactly. they, they end up, I mean, I've, I've worked for, I, I used to work with a lot of small business people. It's like, they just can't stop themselves from giving a job to their deadbeat son-in-law who just bleeds them dry and costs, well, they you know can't what I mean? Fire they're someone. too nice. They, you know, like I know, I know I've experienced firsthand. I've seen, you know, where like, you know, you, you get someone on board the company who's like, just not really good. They've just been there for a long time. And you're kind of like, what are they going to do if I fight? Like this, this relates kind of to your, you did that great podcast on, is it moral to fire someone? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think it is, but I also think like, like 
people, there are real considerations. People, people think this, even, even shrewd business people have like guilt about fire. Like people that's never talked about. It's like, oh, but like they weigh these decisions. Like, well, am I, is this person even going to make this much money? Like they, could they possibly get another job where they make this much money? And if the answer is no, a lot of these people have, you know, a lot of turmoil about whether they should fire them or not. And, um, so I, I, as much as I dog on or rag on George Bailey, I understand the position he's in kind of too, you know, you're looking at your drunk uncle who's been there forever. He's definitely, he's unemployable. He, you're, he, he, he's, you know, your father's brother. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And what he should have done was if he's going to keep him employed as a charity case is not have him handle the money. That's what he should have done. <laughs> yes. you know? that's, that's the bigger issue. You keep him in a side thing where he's not, you know, not harmful to the business at least he's maybe a cost but he can't do any additional harm um i do uh i do love the scene where the bank examiner comes and this is when everything still roses and they haven't lost the money and like i love the way that he's this you know like pencil pushing little diminutive bureaucratic guy yeah and uh, george bailey's just like smoking a pipe on the phone like oh he's gonna talk to my <laughs> relatives like whatever bank examiner it's like yeah and i wish i wish you could get away with that with the osha inspectors it's, i remember we had a a fire marshal come and we had an office for practice and it just been yeah. just been built and he had to come give us our approval before we could occupy it even though we'd been occupying it for months because it takes them like months to come and all he does is he has to walk through the building. They barely do I anything, wish yeah. I could have treated him like they treated that bank examiner. This dude was so intense and self-serious. I could be like, oh, I'll talk on the phone. And he was like, it was the most insane thing ever. He was like, I mean, this office was insane for many reasons. It was a second floor office with no elevator because the code doesn't require you to have an elevator. But the bathroom had to be handicap accessible. So it was this huge wheelchair accessible bathroom. But how are they gonna- on, on a second floor office with no elevator. So you're yeah. like, how is a wheelchair going to get up these two flights of stairs? Anyway. He comes in and there's like this little lobby area downstairs. There's like a door and then to the right, just a little empty space. And then there's stairs. And he says, and we had a little chair in that empty space. He says, you got to move that out of there. I said, why? He said, there can't be anything in the entryway that could impede exit in case of a fire. And I said, well, if the place is on fire, who's going to come down the stairs? And instead of taking the three steps straight out the door, just like go left into this little portico and sit in a chair. Like no one's tripping over this. It's not in front of the door. He's yeah. like, this is, this is defined as an entry area. And I literally, I got so mad. I was like, I was like, how do you sleep at night? I, I was, I literally, I was saying my employees were like, Isaac, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but that bank examiner scene always makes me be like, that's, that's the way the relationship should go. You know? Yeah. Well, and that's the way to depict them too, as these like paper pushing bureaucrats, you know, <laughs> like there's, there's good parts in the movie where they, you know, they don't depict these people as always, you know, great, uh, great people. Speaking of, of fire people, dude, I had a, I was at my parents' house in San Diego a couple of years ago and uh, I was there alone and I looked outside the window and there was a, a fire truck in the driveway. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? You know? And so I come out and start talking to the guys and they're like, oh yeah, we're driving through. We're testing whether or not we can get into your driveway. And it looks like your driveway, the angle's off. So you're going to have to redo it. That's what they said. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, cause it was like this kind of steep. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, no, no, first no, off, you like understand you, the relationship here, we pay money so that you will serve us and put the flames out. If our house burns yeah. down, we don't pay you to come and tell us how to construct our shit, you know? No. And it's like, why are you even here? You didn't schedule anything. You're just driving <laughs> into people's like, you're just driving this big, you know, beast of a truck into people's driveways. 
and, and, and unscheduled. And then you're going to like, you know, give, give them what a warning or a citation that, or what, like, what are you even going to do now? Yeah. You know, like yeah. if any, if I saw any other car in my driveway, I'd be and like, who's just there. And I, there's a, it's a stranger. I'd be kind of pissed off, you know, I'd be like, get off my property, you know, but, but, but you're, you've got a uniform. So you can just, you can just drive into my, my house to test my driveway without permission. I mean, it's crazy, you know? Um, okay. I feel like let's, let's bring it home with maybe a, a favorite scene or something. Um, I think there's something I was going to say about George creepily stalking around the high school four years after oh, well, he graduated. Okay well, okay. well, that's a whole, yeah. So that's a thing. Cause he's, he's like, I mean, well, the actor's like in his thirties or something, but they act like he's like in like 21 or 22. Yeah. I think um, you're supposed to be four. I don't remember something. He was, well, he's pretty he was he's young at the start of the movie. Like when he's, when he's, when he's yeah. going to get the suitcase and he's like, I want the big one. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's like right out of high school, I think. Right. Or, or a couple okay, years yeah. out of high school. Yeah. And then when that high school dance is going on, he's like in his mid twenties, maybe. Cause his brother is graduating and he's not yeah. that much older than his brother. Yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was different then. But these days, even though that's not that many years, like some older twenty-year-old dude who graduated several years before, like hanging around the high school dance. Track. <laughs> no, I mean dancing with some of the high school girls. Like yeah. that would be weird. That would be that would be strange. Um, okay, but favorite. Uh, I'm gonna go with a, a favorite scene, uh, and then and then you can do one, and we can wrap it up. So. And this is probably the scene these days. Like I usually cry at first at this one. And then I cry at yeah. the end when he's a kid and he's working at Mr. Gower's place. And, and they do a really good job with this scene in particular of demonstrating the, the fact that George Bailey is willing to endure personal sacrifice to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. When he, he realizes that the dude's got the wrong thing in these pills and he tries to tell him and he gets smacked in the ear and he's still like, I can't do this. So he goes and finds his dad or whatever. Um, and then Mr. Gower, you know, all, all drunken and sad because his son has died. When he realizes that and then he, you know, he breaks, he's like breaks down and realizes, oh my gosh, this kid just saved me like for having such integrity. Yeah. And he's, you know, so, oh, I'm not going to hit you. He's like, Don't hit my sore ear again. Like that's just such a point. He was like scene. bleeding out of his ear. He's bleeding. Out of, it's got so much going on. You feel like the pain of, this guy just finding out his son died. So he's, he's getting drunk and he's doing a sloppy job. And this plucky cocky kid like realizes he can't do this. And then he's, you know, he looks up at that sign that says, ask dad, he knows. So he runs to his dad and his dad's busy with business and he doesn't know what to do. And like, I think that is one of the best scenes in the movie. And then you see, you know, later on in that alternate version, Mr. Gower is this, you know, hated person because he poisoned people or whatever. But, um, but I like that. I, I think that's a really good way to portray the positive side of being willing to do the do the right thing instead of the convenient thing yeah, um, no versus what. some of the other portrayals, which to me are really just like him sacrificing his dreams for no reason. But that one, I think, is a really good one. Well, and Mr. Gower would have been a pariah. Like, we don't have much redemption for people. Like, we tend to see these things like... When, when it happens, I think as a culture, like people are very harsh on people who make these kind of mistakes and they don't, but this movie shows the human element that could lead to a mistake like that, where mm -hmm. this guy has just lost his son. He's just devastated. He's drinking. He's making a sloppy mistake. 
and something bad happens and, you know, he kills someone and, and it sucks, but you know, yeah, his life would have been ruined after that. Should it have been? Probably not. You know, I think people should be forgiven for that kind of stuff, but that's what would have happened. And, you, and yeah. so you see the effect that George had on just that one life is tremendous, yep. right? You know, this guy had a completely different outcome now. Uh, and you see later in life, he, he loves George. Like you yeah. can tell, like he, he loves George Bailey. And that's what, what's one of the things that comes through in the movie is like, everybody loves George Bailey, yeah. you know? Um, and I like that, you know, I, I really like that. Yeah, I was going to name that scene, to be honest, as my favorite too. Uh, so I, I try to think, like, if I can, I'll, I'll give some of my favorite lines in the movie. I love the scene, or like, I love the scene where the girl, the, the, the hot uh, sort of um, almost Marilyn Monroe blonde whispers in his ear, George Bailey, I'll love, his deaf ear, I'll love you till the day I die. I thought it was a great line. Um, I love, uh, I love Potter when he's like, Merry Christmas in jail. Yes, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> I always laugh at that. You know, Potter, I mean, so the, the best actors, I mean, Jimmy Stewart's a great actor, and but, but the guy who plays Potter is great. And I don't, I don't, he has less Lionel Barrymore. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, Drew Barrymore is uh, like a yeah. father or grandfather. Gra- grandfather, I think. Yeah. yeah he's in, he's incredible. He's an he's incredible, incredible actor. And it, yeah. the, the voice he does, that kind of like, uh, kind of a high pitch sort of like sneer, like, ah, you know, yeah. like it's, it's yeah. really good. Um, oh, it's amazing. So yeah, I, I love the, uh, I always used to do that, impersonate Jimmy Stewart, where he's like, you know, you're, you're nothing but a scurvy little spider, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and Potter's just like sitting there taking it all calmly. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, um, oh. I think, I mean, I, you know, the, the scene where um, Sam uh, Wainwright gives him the money at the end is nice. Um, that whole scene is one of my favorites too. Yeah, we're, we're like, Sam's like, wire him whatever he needs. Yeah, like, it's like my office failing. instructed to give you an advance of, you know, $20,000. $20, like, I just thought that was a great, yeah. you know, that whole scene in, in, in general is, is, is and thank goodness somebody from that town was enterprising and moved out and went into business so they could legitimately bail him out. You know, <laughs> well, that's, that's the thing too, is like Sam, like he's always, you can tell he's kind of jealous of Sam Yeah, and he knows like, like Sam's living the life he wished he was living. Right. Right. Um, but and Sam's I mean, I think- a little shallow and a little silly, but it's like also, you know, all everybody else dumping their spare change out. That's a really beautiful gesture, but uh, a line of credit from one guy who's got a business that can handle twenty thousand dollars in a without a word—that's going to be more of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean that's a, that's the thing is like you know you can. At the end of the day, like if you if you want to, you know, if, you can help more people by getting rich. Yeah, and by being successful. Sorry, you can. You know, like uh, if if you if you want to have that kind of like because it's it's trivial for Sam to be able to do something like that. You know. Yeah. Um, and and if George was the type of guy if he was portrayed as the type of character who just really doesn't care about that. He's not super ambitious in business and competitive and wanting to be rich and whatever. And he was just more happy, content with being a, you know, whatever, a local yoga instructor who eats granola or some shit, right? Like, okay, then that would be, that would be fine too. If he, if he's a good person, but when you are wired that way to portray it, like you have a choice to either do that or deny the, the dreams that you have, because the only way to be a good person is to deny your dreams. You know, like, I just don't like that message. No. And, and, and that's like the, even just the idea of like, what would have happened if you didn't exist? It's, it's sort of like a package deal. Like they're, they're bundling up a bunch of stuff that are unrelated potentially like, like, okay. So your brother, like your brother would be dead. That's huge. You know, 
uh, and all those men on that ship who your brother saved would be dead. You know, um, uh, Mr. But Gower. Think of all be- the Japanese lives that would have uh, <laughs> still there that weren't killed by that ship. Yeah. No, Mr. Gower, you know, would have his life ruined. Like there's all these other things that, you know, but like some of the things it's, it's kind of like, well, maybe something better would have happened though. You know, yeah. some of the stuff with, with the business and with the, the loans and all that kind of stuff is like, well, you know, and, and, and so, so, you know, it's, it's almost like putting all that stuff into one category and then saying, well, see, it's like, well, no, like there's some really great stuff, but then there's some yeah. stuff that's like, it could have been better or I could have been, I could have had all that other stuff and this. Yep. Playing, not- playing with counterfactuals it's kind of dangerous, yeah. right? Cause like, it can be useful to be like, Hey, you know, like, don't feel like a loser. If it weren't for you, these things wouldn't happen. But if you start to get two counterfactuals are obviously impossible to prove or disprove, but you can start to be like, yeah, but what if this, what if this would have been better with it? And you can never really get to the bottom of it. So you do have to be careful. I, I, you mentioned it earlier, but I always thought the part about, about his wife, it always felt like, that doesn't quite work as well as the other things. Cause it's, it's like, okay. So basically if it weren't for you, your wife would be like depressed and like a loser and lonely. Yeah. That doesn't seem like a real good, like basis for a healthy relationship. Like one of you saved the other from a horrible life. Uh, well, it's that also not honest because she had like a lot of suitors. Like that's part of the thing is like when he, when he goes to see her, he gets so angry because she says something about, I think it's about Sam Wainwright. Is Sam it? Wainwright. Like, yeah. Yeah. The rich, the guy who goes, the, the rich guy wants her. The guy who becomes right. rich is the guy who wants her, you know? And yep. George, that's George kind of like, you know, gets all upset about the whole thing, you know, and slams the phone down and starts yelling and stuff. Um, like she's not, she's a very pretty, very desirable woman. She's not, depicted in the movie at all as the kind of woman who would not find someone else. Yeah. Who, who he like saved from a life of anonymity and loneliness. Right. Well, yeah, so like that's that's said, sort that's of a strange of a toxic relationship. If that's the case, like, right. if, if, if anything, it's like kind of sad for you. If, if, you know, the woman you have can only have a good life, like yeah. with you, like, yeah, the, the way she's portrayed in the counterfactual, seems inconsistent with the rest of the movie and, and always sort of just rub me wrong. But I do love, I do love her character for several reasons. Um, other than that, like she's much more at peace with who she is and what she wants. Like, yeah, she doesn't have that internal struggle that he does where he, yeah. he wants to stay here. Cause he feels like he should, but he wants to go there. She just knows what she wants. I want to get married to you and I want to be in Bedford falls and I want to rehab that old house and I want to have kids. Yeah. And in some ways or some things about her remind me a little bit of, of my wife in terms of like just being interested in like, Oh, it's so romantic rehab this old house or whatever. And I'm like, what the hell let's go out into the world and buy a new cool house. Right. Yeah. But, but that she's like very grounding for him and that, you know, when he leaves in all that distress after bitching out the kids and stuff, she's just like, everybody pray for him. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I just love that. She's got his back. She's there. She understands the gravity. She can't quite relate to what he's going through. Cause she doesn't have those same desires to go out and see the world. But like, I just think that's a really interesting. Um, and she doesn't feel quite like him making choices because he loves her. Doesn't feel as quite as manipulative as with some of the other relationships. Um, but anyway, I, I think she's a good character with the exception of that the counterfactual is just weird, doesn't really fit. Yeah, well, I like I like their relationship dynamic, like how she kind of gets him to, you know, 
open up to her. You know, she, she's kind of like, she's she kind of makes them jealous and, and stuff like that, you know, and, and like, she's, she's a strong character, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, she's a good, a good wife. And, um, also, I mean, George, like part of, part of it, George doesn't, George wants to give her stuff that she doesn't actually want. Yes. Or doesn't yes. need. Yep. And that's on him, you know, yep. like he has to realize, I think he does that like, not only that, like he doesn't necessarily want some of the things he wanted or that his life's still really good, but also like that he doesn't need to like, he, he, that part of his life is already good. He doesn't yes. need to give her more. She's yeah. ha- she has kids. She has a house. She has, you know, him like she's, she has what she wants and he has yep. to see that, you know? Yeah. That that's a, that's a great point. She's got that very much like I'm happy. Like everything I need is right here. Like, I love this house. We're working on it little by little. And he's like this crummy drafty old bar. Like he's, you he's know, taking the, yeah, the, the, the knob off. And I think that's a real common thing with, I mean, I've at least found this in, in my life, but I think I observe it in marriages often. We're like, you know, often the guy feels like, especially if the, the mom is staying at home with the kids, like I've got to, I've got to provide just like all this amazing stuff. And if I don't, I'm a failure and I'm a loser. Yeah. And they think that it's because they, you know, because I want to give my family the experience that they want and that they deserve. And often it's kind of like that where the, you know, the wife is like, look, if we have the basics covered, we have this, like, I don't, I don't care. I don't need that same stuff. I'm not, that's not always the case, right? Women can be, can want a lot of stuff too that they don't have, but there's an element there that, um, that is portrayed really well of that relationship. And that I think is like a really, um, that's a useful and profound thing that like, just slow down a second. These things that you think you're doing, look, look over your wife and your kids. They're happy. They think this is great. They love it. They love living in this old house in Bedford Falls and having their Christmas party and whatever. And like, you think that you're failing them, but you're not failing them. Actually. Um, there's something cool in there. Well, and him just like being able to like, sit down and just talk to your son about, you know, I forget what it was, a son building something or something like that, or just like, or sit down and watch your daughter play piano. Yeah. You know, like all of those things. Cause he, he was struggling to do that because his, his focus was on everything else, yeah. you know, on what he actually, everything else that he was missing out on and everything else that, um, the ways he'd failed. Yeah. And the ways he'd failed as a father or as a, as a husband or as a business person or whatever, like, and he's missing these great moments because his head is, is elsewhere. And he, and, he, and he has to basically sort of die and see what his life would have been like, or see what the world would be like yep. without him in order to uh, experience, you know, to be able to experience the present moment that is actually still really good. Like yeah. that's, that's like a, a, an awesome message. Yeah. That's a, that is a really, uh, that's probably a, one of my other favorite scenes. This is a very powerful scene because, you know, especially if you've, if you've ever tried, you know, things like you and I have tried starting businesses or putting things out there into the world that, that don't work, that yeah. fail. It's really hard. You can tell yourself, oh, failure is part of the process and shake it up. But it's, it's hard to not internalize it and to feel like, man, I set out with this vision to build this incredible thing and I failed at it. And he looks at that bridge that he has that represents his architecture dream and he just throws it on the ground. He's like, I'm, yeah. this is just delusion. I'm such a freaking failure. You know, we can't afford what's wrong. What are you looking at the neighbor's car for? Why is our car not good enough? Cause I'm a failure. Cause I'm a loser. Yeah. Right? And just for him to, to have that feeling and to, and to get that change of perspective. That's like, no, you're not, you're not a failure. Like it's, it's okay. Right. Um, 
even though you, you have failed at certain dreams of yours. Now, maybe those dreams were misplaced or maybe you actually were, did fail, but that doesn't make you a failure as a person. And I think that's a really, I think that's a, a difficult thing, especially as guys get older and you yeah. start to be like, oh, I like literally can't do some, you know, I imagined at some point that I would do this or do that. Now that's not even an option anymore. The future was all ahead of me. It was all these things that I'll do someday. And now those start to limit and you can start to go through that like middle age where you're like, you know, boy, is this it? Is this, is this my peak? You know, um, I relate to that. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm in, I'm in the tail end of my twenties now and I have a kid. But you have a kid that changes what you can do, right? Changes tremendously, you know, what I can do. And, um, I mean, it, I think it changes less than people think, but it still changes. Like, cause like, I think there can be a limiting factor on like, your like, you can limit yourself Yes. and be like, oh, well, this is not possible when in fact it is, it's just possible in like a different way or, or something, you know, but, but yeah, like it's like, everything suddenly has an extra added component of um, you know, um, complexity to it. And I'm, I'm definitely looking at things now and being like, man, like anything, like things that I've put off, some of those things I made us never do now. Right. Or it'll be harder to do. Um, and man, I shouldn't have put it off. Right. Or yeah. something, you know, yeah. really, really. And it's like, I, I've come to appreciate the idea that like one of the reasons you shouldn't put things off is not because like, you know, it's, it, it's because literally like you either won't be able to do it later in the future. You may, or like, even like you may not want to, like your desires change, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it in the moment, yeah. you know, or that it wouldn't be a cool experience. Like I don't really have much of a desire to travel now. Maybe in the future I will again, but I'm really glad I did it. Yes. Because if I hadn't done it, I probably, I may, I may be at the point now where I don't want to do it. And then, you know, and, and, and so some of those things, like I'm I, like, I'm looking back, I'm like, man, I'm glad I did that. Or I wish I'd done that even things that I don't want now um, or things that like, I'm just like, I don't have the energy for right now, or I'm just too busy now, or, you know, it's going to be hard to do with a kid. Like, yes. you know, I, I wished I had done like a year and like, a, like I, I lived, lived in a foreign country longer. Um, I'm not really going to do that with a kid now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I just don't. It, I, it's I, funny. I just, it's funny. You mentioned that, like, like one of the greatest assets when you're young is your your capacity to handle like deprivation of creature comforts. Yeah, which like, I'm not going to do that with a kid now. Yeah. Which should be utilized even, and even without a kid, it's like, I've traveled for so many years for work, mostly domestically, but the older I got, I'd be like traveling some conference or whatever and be like, Oh, I'm not staying in a Weston. Oh God. The pillow is going to suck. And I'd be all grumpy. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's like once upon a time, I'd be like sleeping on a park bench, you know, I'd be sleeping yeah. on my, my buddy's, you know, pull out sofa. I just, I just went recently. My son went with some friends or some relatives down to Florida for this little thing. And I went to pick him up and they were all staying in this Airbnb and, and he was like a last minute addition. So it wasn't even like there was really good accommodations. And it's been so many years that we've had a family. And so when we go somewhere, we get like a whole house Airbnb. And if there's like dirt on the floor, we're like, Ugh. you know what I mean? Like we've just yeah. gotten used to it and gotten pampered. And I go in there and this place is just like this little dump, you know, and there's like three of these like early twenties teenagers staying in there. And I'm like, and he's like sleeping on the, one of them sleeping on the couch on the floor. And my gut reaction was to be like, Oh my God, you guys are, this is just, and then I thought when I was his age, when I was 16, this would have been awesome. I yeah. would have just thought it was amazing. And like, 
the fact that there's so many things that now I just won't do just because I'm like, I'm just older and I'm more used to things in it. You know, and like physically, if I sleep on a floor, I'll wake up with a stiff neck and I didn't used to. You got to seize the, you got to seize the time to do a lot of stuff when, when that doesn't bother you, when you've got the flexibility of time and you're not, you're not used to, you know, you don't care that you're whatever sleeping on a dirty couch uh, or whatever you can, you can have a lot of those experiences. um, And early on. So, so I think it is good to have that like realization that in a way time is slipping away and you want to, and you want to act now without becoming, you know, like panicked and desperate about it. Yeah. I used to sleep. I mean, I can't, I, I, I don't know if I ever would again. I mean, maybe I have, I, I don't want to even put myself in that position, but like I've slept on, you know, in airports on the floor, you know, overnight so many times where it's like the only people around are like the cleaning crew with some really loud, like yeah. big cleaning, uh, sort of like, uh, like a cleaning, I don't know what it is, like a, like a, like a tractor kind of thing, you know, going through the airport. Like, like a Zamboni almost. Yeah. Like a Zamboni. That's, that was the word I was thinking of. Um, sleeping you know there i mean i when we went to ecuador together i flew and i got there like midnight and i slept i actually slept through my flight at like 5 30 in the morning i slept on the uh, i was I, I woke up on the um airport uh, bench you know at like eight o'clock i'm like holy crap i slept through my flight <laughs> you know but like i've done so many things like that where like you know i would feel like hell if i did it now and yeah. also spoiled but like i would generally just feel bad the, yeah know? the like, price is just higher your body price can't is higher yeah. like staying like i used to like I could stay up all night and I'd be fine. The next Dude, time. I don't think you slept for a good couple of years there. I was, I was monitoring your, you know, communications back when you worked with Praxis. I was like, this dude doesn't sleep. I swear. <laughs> I, I can't do that anymore. You know, like I just, I just can't, I can't, um, I mean, I can stay up late, but then like the next day I feel like hell. And, yeah. and I know that the next day is going to be like useless until like one o'clock, you know, if I take, like, I got to take like a nap and I got to have tea and I'm just going to be like groggy until like the mid afternoon, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, you have to like seize all those moments when you have the chance to do them, even if like, they're not going to be moments you want later on, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, that's like, you know, in, in the movie, I guess the, the connected back to the movie, it's just like, it's just very relatable. Yep. You know, like, yep. especially as you get older and older, it's one of those movies that ages really well yes. and you appreciate it more and more. And absolutely. You know, despite that, I like to mock it for some of the stupid stuff or just say that Potter's the real hero. Like George Bailey is a really relatable guy in so mm-hmm. many ways. Even if yep. you haven't, even if you haven't lived your life like him to that degree, like you can just relate to like how he feels yes. in that moment. You know, he's got kids, he's got a wife, he's looking around. It's like, holy crap. Like, my life has gone by and like so many things I wanted to do, I didn't do. And I, I can't do them. Yeah. And yeah. you have to, and he has to learn to be okay with that. Yep. <laughs> and to appreciate what he does have yep. is, is, and that what he does have is, is, is perhaps more meaningful than a lot of that other stuff, but it's like really hard to do. It's yeah. really hard to appreciate the present and what you have, no matter how good it is. Like you, sometimes you have to have it all taken away. You know, that's what he, that's what he has to go through, you know, to see like, Hey, my kids, my wife, like that's, that's everything to me, you know? So are you going to keep the family tradition alive and uh, have an annual viewing with, uh, with your kids? Oh yeah. Yeah. I want to, yeah. I, I want to do that. I want to do I mean, well, first off, not just that though, we got to do dumb and dumber. We got to do the Adam Sandler movies. The list gets pretty do, long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the list is long. We got to do some old Ben Stiller stuff. And then we have, um, uh, made, you know, obviously, um, it's a wonderful life and sound of music. 
You've seen Sound of Music, I know, right? Yeah, I've seen it a couple times when I was younger. And I remember uh, the first time I saw it, similar to you, I was like, oh, it's a musical, you know, because I'm like an eight-year-old boy or whatever. I saw it again, I think in my teens, and was like, this is like some really inspiring, like, pro-freedom stuff here, you know? Yeah. Um, and appreciate it. But it's been a long time. We should we need to watch that uh, with the kids for family movie night because it's been a long time. Dude, it's a great, it's, a, it's, an, it's another movie about, like, the importance of your family too and like appreciating the present because this this guy um the um the colonel or whatever is whatever uh, the the main the lead actor the, the lead male he um you know his wife has died and he has all these kids and he's alone with the kids and he's like completely lost his ability to connect with them you know he's just like cold stern you know tr- runs the house like a military you know troop um and the process of, of the movie, he, he becomes a warm person again, who is able to like connect with his kids again. And, um, it's like really, really moving, but also like relatable too. like, you, you know, um, I'm sure you like when you, you have to work to like, continue to like be connected with your kids, you know, like the shit, because your kids just don't even see the shit that you go through. It also yeah. makes you appreciate your parents more, you know? Yeah. And you're like looking at your mom and your dad or whatever. And you're just like, oh shit. Like the fact that you managed to always put a smile on and like not let me know how miserable you were that day is yeah. like really, really hard. You know? <laughs> yeah. like, and, uh, and life can just, you know, get at you to where like you, you, you know, time goes by and you realize you haven't really been there completely for them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, Getting, getting regrounded in that frequently, especially, you know, especially if you have gone through something like that. I mean, I can't even imagine like losing a a spouse like that, but the, the kind of survival instinct takes over and you're like, okay, well to survive, we just got to run a tight ship and that's it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I like to watch movies like that and like what's wonderful life because ultimately like those movies, like they remind you of that kind of stuff. Yep. And they, I think that's useful. It's like, um, it's like, I don't know, reading the Bible every day or something like that. Like you, you read a couple passages from the Bible and you just like, you get into that spirit, right? No matter what you read. Yep. Even if it's just like one into that, you know, frame of, of operating. Um, so it's healthy to do it. It it grounds you in the the best version of humanity for, you know, just kind of connects you back to to, to what it, you know, what is a good version of being a, a person? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I love it, man. Well, we're going to, we're definitely watching it again this year. And my, my only quandary is if I just leave it without commentary or if I, you know, let the kids in on the, no, you, you got to pause it and tell the kids like, well, okay, look, look at this. This is actually a subprime <laughs> loan and explain why these are bad and explain how they caused the 2008 <laughs> financial crisis. <laughs> okay. Kids. Right here, everybody pull out Great Myths of the Great Depression by Larry Reed. You're going to read yep. that before we press play again. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to read the entire, uh, you know, John Galt speech from Atlas Shrugged before we continue here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, this was a ton of fun. We should do uh, these sort of pop culture type convos more often. Oh, well, I, I want to do one on... Um old movies like uh well, not old but like 90s the 90s game. movies yes the 90s the i'm gonna 90s. do one on the 90s and about like what what changed in movies from from there to now and uh you know just kind of like reminiscing about that 
you know, because, uh, because I just miss it, man. I, I miss, I miss the spirit of the nineties. Yeah, man. We could, um, we could even talk about music. We could talk about the monkeys cause they were a major influence on the Beatles. Who? Come on. It's from dumb and dumber. He's like, wait, 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 was that a line from dumb and dumber? They're sitting in the diner and he's like, Oh look, they've got the monkeys. They were a major influence on the Beatles. <laughs> oh, no, I, didn't. I don't. I, I can't I believe you. I got you. A how dumb did you, dumber line? How did you get me? I'm like the king of movie lines. You I, got you've me. Never had a dumb and dumber line go over your head, and you've done no. It and I've been like, what? Wait. Oh, dude, I'm 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 sad now. Like that that's, that's movie. Like I feel like I've memorized like everything from it too. Yep. You got it. Just, now you're gonna have to as penance. You're gonna have to go watch it again. Just oh to- yeah, well, great great penance for me. I can watch that over and over and over. I have been since I was the kid. I used to have. Oh. I, I remember we had the old um, VHS with the like that went into the paper box. You know. Yep. Just the little slip on. Yep. I had that yellow one. Man, man, those were the days. Hey man, this is good stuff. Great, great to chat. We'll do it again. Yeah, I'll see you later, man. Bye.